0: Matthew chapter 2. We're going to spend a lot of time there today, but let me pray one more time and ask God uh, to come and, and, and be with us. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, I, when you came on earth, you were called Emmanuel. It's not just name after our worship leader here, but that name is means that God is with us. And and, and I I think that it's just, we just pause for a second on the other side of all the holidays and the festivities. And and just just be reminded again, God, that you're not distant. You're not far away. You're with us. And if you're with us, then, Father, what is, who can be against us? That's what Paul says. And so, God, I want to offer you this time. I want to offer you uh, these words that you have written for us. pray that through the Holy Spirit that you would awaken and and pour out and flow through the caverns so that everything in, in this 2017 would be about our soul that just blesses you and honors you. God, I just want that for us, and I thank you for, for the power of the Holy Spirit that lives in us, for nothing is impossible. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You know, uh, growing up, um, really Christmas time, like a lot of young kids, uh, was really my favorite. Even uh, when we were back in Vietnam and, and just remembering these memories of, of, of what it was like growing up as a Catholic boy. And uh, Christmas was magical for us, uh, the, my favorite time of the year. And they would set up manger scenes and, at the church and there would be choir singing, uh, just beautiful music. And so it was really magical for us. You know, it's just uh, when we came to America, of course, there were other things. Uh, there was no school, something to look forward to. Uh, shopping for gifts, opening gifts, cooking really big meals. We still do that. Uh, gathering with families. Uh, we used to play football, right, and watch football. Um, going to midnight mass and, again, hearing the choir, which is incredibly full of joy. Um, But then the least favorite time of year, for me at least, uh, would be the day after. (laughs) You have to clean up. And then uh, you have this empty tree. You have the quiet house. And then you realize how much debt you just accumulated. Um, And then you realize how much you regret eating that extra turkey or whatever you guys had. And then, especially at the end of every year, you realize how quickly time has passed by. Quickly time has passed by. And, and so life, in all of its essence, is back to normal, right? And then everything on the other side. And I remember working for Boeing uh, right out of college. I remember, you know, if you work for Boeing, you know you had the two, like a week and a half at the end of the year off, right? And then you're like, wow, what a great place to work, to give you a week and a half off. And then you realize on the other side, you don't get a holiday until Memorial Day, which is in May. I'm like, wow. So they really get you for that. So don't work for Boeing. Um, <laughs> but really, it's, um, it's the ordinariness of life. And so I was wondering, you know, at the other side of that first Christmas, the first Christmas that Jesus was born, what was life like? Was it the same? You know, he was born in a manger and you, you, you read about all these wonderful things. You have this uh, glorious heavenly flash mob of angels. And they came and they sang. And the visitation of the shepherds. And you wonder, did life return on the other side of Christmas? Did it go back to normal? Did the crushing weight of the Roman occupation take center stage again? And you realize life was not easy. And so the question before us, we enter Matthew chapter 2, is, is really the question: what difference does the gospel make? What difference does this entering of God make in our lives? When God became flesh and moved into the neighborhood, what difference does that make in our lives? How will the world respond to this cosmic display of grace? How will you and I respond? on this other side of Christmas. And so that's what I want to deal with this morning. That's a central thing that we set before us. So when Jesus comes on the scene in any of our lives, the question always remains, what will you do with this Christ child? And so we conclude our Christmas series this morning. And we turn to Matthew chapter 2. Matthew's going to deal with this very question. And what he does is really brilliant. Right after Jesus was born, he presents two groups of people. He presents the Magi, and then he presents King Herod and his entourage. And he sets before us two choices of how we deal with this Christ child. And so what I would do is I'm going to read, and we're going to deal with verses 1 all the way to 18. But I'm going to read a few verses and then make comments, and we continue. All right, you guys with me? Right? Turn to your neighbor and say, hey, let's go. I mean, don't leave anywhere. Don't, don't go anywhere, but just stay here. But That's a metaphorical. Anyway, so verse 1. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, magi from the east came to Jerusalem. So let's pause there. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem. So he sets it up. He sets it up really clearly. It's going to be uh, right after birth. Two groups of people. And so what I begin to think about is this incarnation of grace. And so uh, in your in the first point in your outline, I want to just state it right off the bat. That grace, the grace of God is here. It is universal. And it is invitational. And that's important for us to understand. That here it comes the grace of God personified. So grace is here. Matthew reminds us right off the bat that Jesus Christ was born. And so grace has come, mercy personified, the creator entered creation. God is physically with us. Love came down. And so I speak of grace here because verse 1, we recognize right away that our God is not distant or angry, or waiting to pour his wrath on rebellious humanity. No, the good news is God came as a baby, and we poured our wrath on him. This is grace personified. Grace has a name, born in a local town, located in a real district. So if you want to go to Bethlehem, it's still there. You can go into this church. And you walk down into the bottom. I didn't get a chance to do it. But you can walk down into the bottom of the the basement, so to speak, of this church. There's an altar with a hole in the ground. And you can kneel and you can touch. Supposedly that's supposed to be the manger. Cool, huh? It's still there. And then the second thing we need to know about grace, just in this context, just in verse 1, that grace is universal. And so grace It's going to come, Jesus is going to come into the midst of God's people as represented by King Herod. And so if you know King Herod, you will talk a lot more about him. But he ruled in Jerusalem, and he was a a strong king. It's a powerful king. And then we also read about Magi. And so the grace of God also comes to foreigners, people in distant land, most likely from modern-day Iraq. And they travel great distance. In search of this baby born king of the Jews. And so grace comes to all of us. Whether you're high up like Herod, like the king, or whether you're the least of these, like the shepherd, or anywhere in between, grace is here and grace invites. That's the last thing. Grace is open to all, it's invitational. And you have to read the story. And the story is like the Magi, they saw the star, and Herod, he's gonna hear the prophecy. And when God shows up in grace, he invites all of us, you and me, to come and see. And grace calls those who have ears to hear. And so I love the way Matthew, just in one verse, he sets up these two parties. And so perhaps at the start of this new year, I want to ask the question, how many of you guys have gotten cold to the grace of God? How many of you guys even think about God's grace anymore? You know, we sing this old hymn, you know, and we just kind of just blow it past us, right? We were lost, but now we're found. We were blind, but now we can see that line, grace will lead us home. And God is here. And I want to believe that wherever you are or whatever situation you find yourself but nothing with God is impossible if he's here. You know, and, I, and that, maybe that's the thing for me that I move into 2017 with. That I want to believe that whatever it is that's happening in my heart, whatever future that, that, that God holds for Julie and myself, that, that nothing is impossible. God wants me to journey with him and take this risk into the greater faith. Okay, so let's continue on in our story. So after Jesus was born in Bethlehem, in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. And when King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. Then Herod called the magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. Verse 9. And after they heard the king, they went on their way. to their country by another route. So, isn't this amazing? I mean, let's pause there. Just amazing that the first responders, up to the grace of God coming down in flesh, were foreigners, pagans from lands far away. Now, very little is known about these magi, except whenever the word magi is used in the New Testament and other Jewish writings, it is always has a negative connotations and a very suspicious tone. See, magis were considered cultic worshippers of stars and constellations. Astrology was their religion. And so they were full of superstition, looking to the stars for special knowledge and spiritual powers. And so whenever uh, they talk about that, excuse me, <coughs> uh, they do not want to emulate these people. But when, when Matthew uses them, it's just like when, we, when, when Pastor Roy talked about the genealogies uh, of Jesus. just like the foreign women that they include in there. Uh, Matthew presents these foreigners, these magi, as the first to seek Jesus. In fact, they traveled a great distance over a span of about two years to come to Jerusalem to find this baby and to worship. And God, did you notice, even used their religious practice of looking to the stars to awaken them to this coming king. These shady and these foreigners were the first to respond to the universal grace. Everyone is welcome at God's table. Everyone is welcome at God's table. And look what happens. And when they saw the star, the magi, they saw the star. Matthew wrote that they were filled with great joy. And when they came and saw the child with Mary in the house, they bowed down and worshipped and offered their treasures. They realized something revolutionary in, this, in finding this Christ child. But they have found the one who made the stars, the one to whom the stars and all of heaven declare. And in the presence of this God baby, you notice that they offered everything they had. They offered the greatest treasure. And so what do what, what these magi, what did they teach us? What is the, the lesson for us today? See, the magi shows us. That those who love grace will seek grace and find Christ in their own Bethlehem. That those who love grace will seek grace and will find Christ in their own Bethlehem. See, if if your heart is open to grace... You will yearn for more of who he is. You will yearn for more of God. And God will lead you to this grace personified. See, you notice the way of revelation to these, these magi. They first saw the star. They saw this, this magnificent star in creation. God revealed himself to them in creation. And then the star led them where? Why didn't the star lead them to, Jeru- I mean, to Bethlehem? Why did the star stop at Jerusalem? You ever wonder that? I mean, Jerusalem and, 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 uh, and Bethlehem are really close together. It's like a 30-minute bus ride. And so why didn't the star lead them straight to Bethlehem? Because I think when God reveals himself, he reveals himself through creation. We become to be, to be very curious. And so he leads them to Jerusalem. And in Jerusalem, these magis what happened to them? They heard the word of God, didn't they? The prophecy of Micah. God leads them to the word. And the word of God was preached to them. and says, in Bethlehem is where you need to be. Because that's what the word of God says. And so they hear the word of God and they travel to Bethlehem. And ultimately, God leads them to himself. God in the flesh, the child in the manger. The beautiful, the way that God takes people. That if you see him, if you're open, if you're curious, if you look to the heavens and say, who made all these things? God will lead you to his word, and in his word you will discover Christ. That's how our journey is. So, those who love grace will find grace, will seek grace, and find Christ in their own Bethlehem. So, are you lovers of grace? The question in 2017, if you answer yes, then the question is, do you seek him? Do you seek him in your daily lives? Is is Christ your greatest joy and all-surpassing treasure? Is he worthy of your worship, worthy of your adoration? Do you hear from his word? Are you connected to his body? Do you share him with other people? So perhaps, let me challenge you at the start of 2017, The the, the simple question you want, I need you to wrestle with is do you love, do you love Jesus? Do you love Jesus, my friends? And if you say yes, or if you say no, then, then you have to ask the question, what in my life needs to change to make that statement? Yes, I love the Lord. What walls need to come down so that Jesus can have all of me? What sin do I need to forsake and seek grace so that I can see Christ in my own Bethlehem? And I I just pray that 2017, there would be full of Bethlehem moments for you. You would come to a place of adoration and worship. And the offering of your treasures to the one who is worthy, who calls us to follow. Those are the magi. That's one response. Pick it up in verse thirteen for the second response. So the magi went home on another route. When, and verse thirteen begins: When they had gone, angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said. Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he, meaning Joseph, got up, took the child and his mother during the night and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said to the prophet, out of Egypt I call my son. When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious night all is calm all is bright it's quickly shattered you know whenever i read this passage i want to go i wonder how come no one made a christmas card of this scene of herod's soldiers slaughtering baby boys isn't this also part of christmas isn't this part of a christmas story how come we just see these beautiful manger <laughs> right would really had clean animals and excellent place. I would rather born in that manger in some of the cards than in the hospital. No one ever writes, no one ever sends Christmas card with the death of the innocent. But that was what Jesus was born into. And you know, most of us think of this, the, the cross of Jesus, uh, where all of our sin was poured out on Christ. But I wonder. If the sin pouring did not begin at the birth of Christ. There in the cold, in the dirty manger, being hunted for extermination, being the cause of, of genocide, driven from home, a refugee in a strange land without home or country, uncertain of one's future. That's how Jesus began his life. And that's where many people in our world find themselves today. So Christ, in all of his life, has a lot to say about refugees, has a lot to say about homelessness, has a lot to say because he endured all these things. He was a baby, fleeing. Funny story. Had a chance to go to visit Israel, and, and, um, and the ministry of our friends over there, they minister to refugees from Sudan who escaped and made their way into Israel. And the government of Israel picks them up, takes care of their wounds, and drops them off in the middle of Tel Aviv where they just go find work or sleep in the park, wherever they can find it. And here, this couple, they go and minister to him. And they're in the park they begin to just begin to, to share the gospel through pictures and stories. And uh, Julie and I were there just to visit them. And uh, I remember one time, he, he, he's, he's, he's very, he, he's like a ball of energy, okay? And so here's this guy, coming up and r- talking to people, and he knows Arabic, and he translates for me. And um, he turns to me, tongue. Um, before we feed these guys, can you tell them your testimony? And I'm sitting there right. Like, what, what, what did my story have to do with African Dauphirians um, escaping for their lives to Israel? And then I realized I, too, was a refugee. My family escaped Vietnam, and God brought us to America. And so I shared that story, and he translated for me. And I looked them in the eye. There's a connection for me. And so Jesus was our first and our greatest refugee. And he too understands the pain of those who are displaced. But the story right here, this section was not about that mainly. It's about Herod. And unlike the Magi, historians know quite a bit about this Herod the Great. He's a smart and powerful and paranoid king, and he built many magnificent forts and temples, stuff you can still, if you go to Israel, you can still see it today. Uh, Forts like Masada near the Dead Sea, you can go up and you can see where he built his stuff. And, of course, the biggest thing that he built was the temple, the Herodian temple uh, in, in Jerusalem. But throughout his reign, historians just really have, have really hammered home this point. This king, Herod, was paranoid. He was crazy to the point of crazy. That He was so paranoid that someone was going to take his throne. That he, in fact, murdered three of his own sons to make sure that they never take his crown. And Caesar Augustus, who was the emperor of Rome wrote that it is better to be Herod's pig than his son. It's crazy. And so you have a picture of this Herod character. And so imagine Herod's in Jerusalem, and then these magi's come, and they ask this question, where is the king of the Jews to be born? And so imagine in his mind what was going on there. And so what makes this, uh, this story especially scary, and has a lot to say for us, Herod had access to the word of God. In fact, right when he heard the question from the Magi, what did he do? He called all the theologians, he called all the pastors in Jerusalem, and he says, hey, where is the king of the Jews, where is the Messiah to be born? And these pastors and theologians They they shared the word from the prophecy of Micah, and this word from Micah was clear and well-known and accepted. It was something that probably all the kids grew up because it talked about the promised hope of this Messiah that God would send to redeem the nation of Israel. And so they quoted it by heart. They didn't have to look it up. It was good news. They remembered it. So, when Herod hears God's word, the question is will he respond? Because God invited Herod to come and see as well as he did with the Magi. He says, Are you going to come? Are you going to come and see? Are you going to respond to this invitation to receive the newborn king? But Herod, of course, he refused. What did he do? He says to these magi, go find the child and report back to me so that I can go and worship him too. Herod would not be moved. He would not receive grace. Instead, he would seek to murder grace. Because in a world of power... There is no room for grace in a world where might makes right. There is no room for mercy. And so here was Herod. It reminds you of our world. It reminds you of the places you go to work. It reminds you of the things you go to. Well, you have to do when you're in school. Might makes right. The smarter one wins. And here is Herod. And so what does Herod tells us? Like the Magi, if you love grace, you will seek grace and you will find Christ. Herod, on the other hand, that shows us that those who hate grace will end up hating people and end up hurting people. If you hate grace, if you reject grace, you will hate people and you will hurt people. See what, when when God, my friends, when when God no longer stirs your soul, when his word and his promises no longer have any bearing on your life, you will move from grace and mercy and dependency to power and independence. You will seek to find your own way, from other centeredness to self-centeredness, from community to isolation. For example, when we forget how much God has forgiven us, it is a lot easier to hold grudge against my brother or my sister. When when you have forgotten how much sin God has forgiven you, it is so much easier to dislike other people, to focus on their sins and not yours. When we have no room for God... When we have no room for his grace, we begin to devalue life. This is serious. When, when God is not part of your worldview, life becomes cheap. And we base the value of others on how much they are worth, even as we base, base our self-value on how much we are worth. And so it's not a surprise It's not a surprise that Herod can just simply snap his finger and kill all baby boys in the vicinity of Bethlehem two years and under. That's not a surprise. Whether it's through the sword or through abortion, it is no big deal when little babies have very little value in our culture, where life has very little value. It is not a big deal. You should not be surprised that euthanasia is a very popular thing in certain circles. Hey, when people are old and they they no longer are useful to society, let's just kill them off. That's not a problem. We'll call it mercy killing. Find a name that sounds better. When God is no longer... A part of our world, our society, our worldview, life becomes very cheap. Frederick uh, Bruner, one of our, uh, Pastor Roy, and my, my favorite commentator uh, of this book of Matthew, he says it really well. Those who begin by hating the child end by hurting children. Hating revelation leads to hurting people. If people will be ungodly, they will be inhumane. Is that true? If there's no value, if God is not speaking to you the value of life, then people's lives are but tools, can be tossed away. And so those who hate grace will end up hating people and hurting people. Dear friends, do you hate the grace of God? Do you reject the revelation that you have access to daily? You know, we may not be killing babies and children, but do we truly value all of life? Do we ignore the homeless and and despise the poor and needy? Are we prejudiced against those who are different from us? African Americans, homosexuals. Liberals, conservative, do we hate Hillary supporters? Do we despise Donald Trump supporters? Do we know any Muslims? See, do we stand up for those who have no voice? The unborn, the refugee, the elderly? Do we elevate life wherever life is attacked? See, to be honest, what frustrates me in my life is if I claim that I care about black lives, for example, and, and that they matter, how come I don't know very many black lives? If I care about the unborn, do I know where the nearest pregnancy uh, center, crisis pregnancy center is? I actually, when I was, I was at this point, I looked it up last night. This one right down the street on Orcas and Rainier. do you know, if you care about these things, do you know, and if there is no one in your life, then do you really care about these issues? Do I support with my money institutions and organizations who care for the poor and the homeless and the persecuted Christians? So perhaps in 2017, Let us run to wherever God may be found. Whether you have to be about his word on a consistent basis, or or you take a risk and reach out to befriend those who are different from us, or you book a trip this year, not for vacation, but rather to see how the kingdom of God is expanding all over the world. Take a trip to the Middle East. Don't be scared. Don't worry. I tell people, man, if you're going to go out, at least go out doing something for God, right? right. I know, that's, I don't want to joke about that, but wouldn't it be great to go out doing mission work? That would be awesome. Perhaps in 2017, determine in your life to remove any walls that keeps you from more of God. Be it secret sins or idols of success, or or these fears that you hold on to, or the pride that you have, whatever it may be, determined to remove it so that God might have all of you. I pray that we may never grow so cold that God's grace and mercy ceases to remove us, to move us from our comfortable life. I hope you never grow so cold that when you hear the gospel, it becomes such familiarity. It doesn't stir you to worship. and doesn't stir you toward the affection for Christ. And so Matthew lays before us the Magi. And he says they're open to, the, to God and to, to his grace as revealed in Christ. And so God summons them no matter how far out they are, how hopeless our situation, he calls us Into this place and to pay attention to hear, to Bethlehem, and to see. And Matthew holds out Herod, an example of what happens to us when we despise grace, no matter how high we are. He serves as a warning to those in the church because you have abundant access to the Word of God into fellowship, to the breaking of bread, to the worship of of the Savior, that you are in very much in danger of rejecting grace and missing Christ altogether. Listen, brothers and sisters, this is so true. I have worked with students that they've heard the gospel over and over again, and yet at the end of the day they walk away because they want to find something else, something better. And so the danger is you can sit on these pews and listen to these words of God and still say, whatever, it's not for me. And so, on the other side of Christmas, what will your life be like? The last thing I have on your outline. May our lives be lived as a response to the gospel. May our lives be lived as a response to the gospel. And let it be a response to grace, to the grace of God who came down when we were not willing to go to him. He came to us. So what does that look like, to live in response to the gospel? You notice the magi. They worshiped and they offered their treasures. And then Matthew wrote, having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. What makes someone bold enough to defy a king, especially a crazy powerful king? What makes someone bold enough or or weird enough to obey dreams instead of reason? What makes someone risk their lives to sneak back out of the country? The only answer for these magi, they saw God in the manger. And this good news far outweighs whatever risk, whatever herods there are in our lives. You know, people ask me, tongue, okay, so you've been doing ministry for over a decade now, and so uh, what have you learned? <laughs> I've learned a lot. Number one, I've learned that I don't know as much as I think I know. Number two, uh, seminary did not prepare me well for ministry. Um, I shouldn't have said that out loud. Um, but more importantly, I have a message. And I think this is the message that's going to take me to, to the time I get to see Jesus. And the message is this, that we're not changed by the gospel. We will not give the gospel. If you don't believe the gospel is for you, you will never share it with your best friend. If the gospel does not make a dent into the way that you live your life, you will never, ever Risk your life to share with anyone. Do you believe the gospel? See, we, we think the gospel is for unbelievers. We think the gospel, hey, if you don't know Jesus, hey, Tom, can you share the gospel with this person? The gospel is for you and for me. It's the same grace that brought us to Christ, it's the same grace that's going to lead us home. It's the same gospel. only hope we have to overcome our sins, the only hope that we can overcome the impossibilities of the things that we face in ministry and life, is the gospel. At the end of the day, that's all we have, brothers and sisters. Is the gospel in your life powerful enough? Do you believe on it enough to overcome your fears and insecurities? To overcome your sins. See, you're no longer a slave to fear. No longer a slave to sin. The song says, "You are the child of God." If I if I have a pen right now, I mean, if you have a pen on you, I would just just write it. Just write on. Find a place in your arm, and write, "Child of God." If you don't want to do it, get somebody else to write for you. Let it be reminded that you—that's who you are. You are forgiven. And the second thing, if you're going to live your life around the gospel, is the gospel must be shared wherever you are, right? And that makes sense. Good news is meant to be shared, given freely, spread joyfully. And so the question I have, is the gospel worth risking your reputations or security or even your life? Does the gospel influence the way you approach schools and exams and friendship? What does the gospel have to say about the field of study you want to major in? How can this gospel speak to the world of technology and, or science or, or medicine or law? How does it speak to the way you raise your kids or the way you care about your marriage? The gospel must be shared. You know the way I, why I love working with students, okay? Because when I challenge them to share the gospel with their friends, I realize what cost that takes. Because if you tell your friend you're a Christian and you try to share Christ with them, you can lose them. You can they can call you a loser, a, a Jesus freak fanatic. At worst, they call you a Republican, gun toting. National Rifle Association and Supporting. Yeah. How hard is that in a socially awkward world that we live in? And so I'm challenging our students to risk it all, to share Christ with their friends. And so I challenge you, would you risk it all? So on the other side of Christmas. The other side of Christmas is life. And so let us center our lives on the reality that Bethlehem really did happen. If Jesus came, then everything changes. And the gospel is here. And the gospel is for you. So let us bring it to this world wherever God sends us. Amen. And so this morning, we get to start our New Year's right. You're invited to the Lord's table. Now, for those who love grace, the Lord's table is the invitation of Christ to come and remember the body and the blood that he shed and poured out and broken for us. If you hate grace, it's just some really nasty wafers and horrible grape juice. And so the question I have before you, as you come forward and receive this body and blood, who are you? Are you Magi's or are you King Herod? And let that be a place. And let this front area, wherever you are, commit your life to follow the star and it will lead you to Bethlehem. So I invite the ushers to come forward. The night before Jesus was betrayed, he, the night before he was to die, he, he, had, he gathered his friends together and he took a bread and he broke it in front of him. He says, this is my body, given for you, broken for you, sacrificed for you, do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took uh, this simple cup. And he gave it to his friends and he says, This is the cup, a cup of my blood. The blood that will be poured out for you as an everlasting covenant. I am no longer mad at you. This blood will cover your sins and restore you to me. So drink of it as often as you do in remembrance of Christ. Whenever you're ready, just invite you to come down the middle and take your time as you take communion.